Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit. If you own or operate a business, whether it's a local operation or a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. The Economist. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm Jason Palmer. And I'm Ora Okunbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Ethiopia is landlocked and would like access to one of the world's busiest shipping lanes. Somaliland isn't recognized as a country and would like to be. A potential deal that would satisfy both desires is unsettling the volatile Horn of Africa region. And for over a century, British soldiers have been banned from having beards. But as the Defence Secretary seeks to overturn the ban, a new era, or shall I say, a new hera, may be on the horizon. First up, though. We're in the state of Gondonia in the Amazon, driving to Labria. Recently, I traveled to the Brazilian Amazon with The Economist's deputy editor, Robert Guest. Anna Lankers is The Economist's Latin America correspondent. This is a typical site along the road. This used to be virgin forest. It was then cleared to make way for cattle. And now, soya beans have been planted here. That's the new industry. We were there because a new president came into office in Brazil, and he's launched an ambitious goal for conservation in the Amazon. He wants to end deforestation by 2030. We wanted to see how this plan was going, and it was a really eye-opening trip. Because everywhere I went in the Amazon, I could see deforestation happening. Robert and I road-tripped it from town to town. And as we drove down the highway, we could smell and see the burning trees. We're just on the edge of the Trans-Amazonian Highway. Here's Robert. The stench of smoke is overpowering here. And this is clearly visible from what is the, the main road through this part of the Amazon. You can hear the flames crackling in the background. We could see soybean fields and cattle grazing happening on deforested land. Grazing on the grass are a few fairly scrawny-looking cows. There's, there's money being made here out of cattle. And we came across barges where informal miners were dredging up sediment from the riverbed, looking for gold. They use mercury to sift out gold from the sediment and then they dump the toxic leftovers into the rivers. 
So for me, the trip was really shocking because Brazil has really sensible rules to protect the Amazon. Those rules forbid basically everything Robert and I saw happening. But the problem is that they're really hard to enforce. Stopping deforestation in the Amazon is going to require ending a general state of lawlessness. So Anna, give me some idea of the scale here. Just how dire is the state of the Amazon? So the Amazon contains two-fifths of the world's remaining rainforest. And that rainforest is super important for biodiversity and it sequesters a lot of carbon from the atmosphere. Since the 1970s, around 18% of the Brazilian Amazon has been lost to things like logging, farming, mining, roads and dams. And that 18% is dangerously close to what scientists call the tipping point, which is around 25%. It's when the forest will not be able to sustain itself. The rainforest produces a lot of moisture, which falls as rainwater in the Amazon and across farmland in South America. And if you chop too many trees down, it won't be able to produce that moisture anymore. And then whatever humans do, the Amazon will keep shrinking and eventually turn into a dry savanna. And the death of the Amazon would release billions of tons of carbon into the air, worsening global warming. So the current president, Luis Ignacio Lula da Silva, who goes by Lula, is trying to stop the rainforest reaching the tipping point. So Anna, how did we get here? Deforestation really accelerated under a military dictatorship that was in power in the 1970s and part of the 1980s. And the dictatorship promoted deforestation in the name of development. But there have been other periods of intense deforestation since then. And one of them was under Lula's predecessor, the far-right president Jair Bolsonaro. He was in office until the end of 2022. And Bolsonaro basically gave the go-ahead to loggers and miners and ranchers to do whatever they wanted in the Amazon. So this not only really damaged the rainforest, it also tarnished Brazil's global reputation. When Lula came into office in January this year, he set an ambitious goal of ending deforestation by 2030 and restoring Brazil's prestige on the world stage. And how exactly is he planning on doing that? First, he's cracking down on this lawlessness problem. Those miners that I saw in the rivers, he's been sending in law enforcement to blow up their barges. I spoke with one miner to whom this has happened a few times. He told me he and other miners have lost everything. So he said, referring to a town that was previously made up of miners. It's a real cemetery. You don't see anyone anymore. Just the sunk barges, you understand? Like in the Titanic, when it sunk. So we're getting at the environmental damage here, but what about the actual deforestation? Deforestation is much harder to combat. In the first eight months of this year, about 3,700 square kilometers, or 1,400 square miles, of the rainforest vanished. That's much less than in previous years. The pace of deforestation fell by almost half in the first eight months of 2023, compared with the first eight months of 2022. And that's because Lula has empowered the environmental agencies again and beefed up law enforcement. And those policies are starting to make a difference. But Lula's going to need to do a lot more to reach his goal of ending deforestation by 2030. 
There's this very wonky problem that enables lots of illegal behavior in the Amazon, and it's land ownership disputes. Anna, what do land ownership disputes have to do with deforestation? So basically, it's very hard to figure out who owns what in the rainforest in Brazil. There are at least 22 federal and government agencies where you can register land, and often those agencies don't interact with each other. Then there's a problem that almost a third of the Amazon is undesignated. And it's those undesignated areas that are at the highest risk of being grabbed and deforested. Undesignated land basically means that it's public land, but it hasn't been confirmed as a reserve or designated for any other purpose. And even in areas that are designated as reserves, people will illegally go in and grab those lands. So a good example of that is a village we visited near Labria, a town at the end of the Trans-Amazonian Highway. It's an indigenous reserve, and no one is allowed to claim private ownership of the land there. But we talked to a small-scale acai and Brazil nut farmer called Mika, and he told me that during the Bolsonaro years, outsiders were trying to claim lands that were often indigenous reserves. Can Lula do anything about this land ownership problem? He's trying. We spoke to Marina Silva, the country's environment minister, and she said the government is trying to integrate all the various land registries into a coherent system. And Lula is also designating more of the undesignated land as indigenous reserves. But it's still an uphill battle. There's a lot working against Lula. Such as... Marina Silva told us that the hardest thing about creating a coherent registry is basically that state governors and a lot of local politicians don't really want to cooperate. Lots of local politicians basically don't want to go to war with miners and loggers who are very powerful. Also, there aren't many jobs in the Amazon. The jobs that do exist in things like sustainable farming typically pay much less than illegal jobs. So this gets at a much bigger problem. Who benefits, at least in the short term, from preserving the Amazon. And it's not the people doing the chopping down of the trees. Anna, as you said at the start, the deforestation of the Amazon is very much a problem that affects the whole world. Does the world not also have an obligation in supporting Lula to protect it? It's hard to say what exactly the economic value of preserving the Amazon is, but a very conservative estimate by the World Bank, released earlier this year, says that the value of the standing rainforest is over $317 billion dollars a year because of things like the irrigation services it provides to the region and because it acts as a massive carbon sink in the world. So because the benefits the Amazon provides disproportionately go to the rest of the world, the rest of the world has an obligation to help conserve the rainforest. And Lula knows this, so his administration has already relaunched the Amazon Fund, which is a fund backed by international donors, which has over a billion dollars. At COP28, in December, Lula asked for more international money. So his environment minister outlined an ambitious plan for a $250 billion fund that would basically pay a fixed sum per hectare of forest to countries that prevent their forests from shrinking more than a very small amount each year. So it's not clear whether this fund will exist, but what is clear is that the rest of the world needs to contribute to stop the deforestation of the Amazon rainforest. Anna, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Ori, for having me. 
Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed spent his New Year's Day inflaming some long-running tensions in the Horn of Africa. He announced the starting point for our cooperation with the brotherly people of Somaliland, a neighboring region that has its own currency, its own army, and a decent bureaucracy, but that so far no foreign government recognizes as a country. The deal Mr. Abiy announced would give landlocked Ethiopia access to a Somaliland port near the mouth of the Red Sea. Sitting next to Mr. Abiy, Musa Bihi Abdi, Somaliland's leader, said he was very happy to sign the agreement. <laughs> Happy they both may be, but elsewhere in the region, not least in Somalia, the deal has sparked anger. Somaliland is a breakaway region of Somalia that declared itself independent 30 years ago. Tom Gardner is our East Africa correspondent. It has much to gain from a deal with Ethiopia, as does Ethiopia itself. However... Leaders in the rest of Somalia, in the capital Mogadishu in particular, are none too pleased with it. So you say that both Somaliland and Ethiopia stand to gain here. Let's start with Somaliland. What's in it for them? Recognition, in theory at least. Ethiopia appears to have offered to formally recognize Somaliland, which would make it the first country in the world to do so. Mr. Musebihi Abdi, Somaliland's president, hopes that where Ethiopia goes, the rest of Africa and perhaps the world will follow. Somaliland would also receive shares in Ethiopian Airlines, Africa's biggest carrier, or Ethio Telecom, the state-owned telecoms provider. The deal may also have been influenced by the United Arab Emirates, which is a close ally of Ethiopia, and particularly the Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, and is an increasingly important regional power. And you say that the rest of Somalia is none too pleased about this potential deal. What's the reaction been? Furious. The authorities in Mogadishu, Somalia's capital, see this as a betrayal by Ethiopia, by Abiy in particular. They worry that Ethiopia would give Somaliland diplomatic status as part of the agreement, and in doing so, kind of hasten the disintegration of Somalia. Just three days earlier, the Somaliland president and Somalia's president had agreed to restart talks on Somaliland's disputed status, but that agreement clearly is now dead. Somalia has recalled its ambassador from Addis Ababa. It says it will stop flights to Ethiopia as well. And the president is asking Abiy to reconsider. He says that the deal will only serve to fuel support for al-Shabaab, the al-Qaeda-affiliated Islamist movement, which still controls much of the countryside in Somalia. And as for what Ethiopia itself stands to gain here? Well, it's been touted in Addis Ababa as a diplomatic triumph, a rare triumph, I should say, when the country is in 
turmoil at the moment, insurgency, protracted war, famine. But from Abiy and Addis Ababa's perspective, Ethiopia lost its coastline, its access to the sea, its ports, its navy, when Eritrea seceded in 1993. That's a country to the north. And ever since Abiy came to power, he's been trying to re-secure direct access to the sea. However, several agreements with neighbours, including Somalia itself, for Ethiopia to make use of its ports have fallen through in recent years. Ethiopia has relied instead for many years for Djibouti, the port of Djibouti, for almost all its external trade. That might now be set to change. And why is that access to the sea so important for Mr. Abiy and for Ethiopia? Well, Abiy has grand ambitions uh, to remake Ethiopia and particularly to make it a power on the Red Sea and in Bab el-Mendeb Strait, which is one of the world's busiest and most contested shipping lanes. Uh, Last year, he started rattling Ethiopia's neighbours by his pronouncements on the need for Ethiopia to break out of what he called a geographic prison. Bear in mind, Ethiopia is one of the world's largest landlocked countries. Since then, diplomats and analysts have been really quite worried that he might even go to war with Eritrea to grab a slice of the coast, which he believes and and has said was a historic and legal mistake that Ethiopia lost back in 1993. Of course, now he can claim, well, I've achieved my goals through diplomacy rather than force. But that has not, as you've said, left everyone happy. What do you think all of this means for the region more broadly? Indeed, the Horn of Africa is particularly volatile at the moment. Bear in mind, Sudan next door is also in the midst of a brutal civil war. This is a part of the world where when diplomacy fails, proxy warfare has traditionally been the response. I think it should be noted that an imminent war between Ethiopia and Eritrea, which some had feared, may for now have been averted. But the prospect of an Ethiopian navy on their doorstep will hardly be welcomed. Djibouti too is going to be unhappy to see more competition for Ethiopia's trade flows. And then widening it out a bit, Egypt and Saudi Arabia are unhappy because they are worried about the UAE's increasing dominance in the region, its bid for kind of regional hegemony. uh, And they see this as, as a play by the Emiratis to secure that. As for what Somalia can do about all this, it wants the African Union and the UN Security Council to intervene. It says Ethiopia has violated its territorial integrity and sovereignty. Whether this has any effect is unclear. I mean, fortune favours the ruthless in the Horn of Africa, and Abiy has a record as a disruptor who tends to get what he wants. Thanks very much for your time, Tom. Thank you, Jason. The British Army desperately needs to modernise. I'm not talking about the ageing fleet of Challenger 2 tanks or even the crumbling accommodation that service people have to live in. I'm talking about facial hair. Duncan Weldon writes about Britain for The Economist. The Army Board, that's the management committee for the service, is pondering whether to end a ban on beards for soldiers which has been in place for more than a century. Duncan, hold on a minute. So you can't have a beard if you're in the army? 
No, if you're serving in the British Army since 1916, you're not generally allowed any sort of facial hair. Now, you are allowed a beard with the permission of your commanding officer, but such permission is typically only ever granted on religious grounds and in quite rare cases. There are a few exceptions. There's a few jobs in the army where, for historical reasons, you're allowed a beard. My favourite example is the goat major, who is actually a corporal, who tends the Royal Welsh Regiment's goat. He's allowed to have facial hair. And so is the goat, which is technically a lance corporal itself. I mean, sometimes Britain is like this. Everyone else in the army is expected to be clean-shaven. Now, in the other services, the rules aren't quite so strict. So the Royal Navy, who are you know, clearly a bunch of woke progressives, they've long embraced beards. You're allowed a full beard in the Royal Navy. And the Air Force, which has long had a thing with moustaches, has allowed a beard since 2019. So then why is the army any different? I mean, it's partially due to tradition. You know, it's been this ban on um, facial hair for more than a century, so it's become a tradition. And, the, you know, the traditionalists argue that beards just don't look very smart on parade. Um, one retired colonel wrote as the army was mulling getting rid of this ban that the morning shave, and I quote, adds to fighting spirit. The better reason than just tradition or some sort of nebulous idea that, you know, shaving makes you a better fighter, there has been some argument that beards prevent the effective use of gas masks. Although you hear that argument a lot, there's actually not very much evidence for it. There are armies other than the British Army which allow beards and facial hair, and of course the Navy and the Air Force, which may occasionally have to use gas masks, do allow facial hair. Has the army always had knives out for beards? No, the army has not always been so pognophobic, to use um, one of my favourite words. In fact, um, you know, bear with me here, it was the army that helped usher in the great Victorian beard craze of the 1850s to the 1880s. So the army technically had a ban on beards and facial hair in place from towards the end of the 18th century. But during the Crimean War, that was fought in the mid-1850s, the ban on beards was relaxed for soldiers serving on the Crimean Peninsula, partially because of extreme cold weather, which a beard could help with, and partially because of the difficulties in shipping in shaving soap to the army out there. Now, this was also the first war to be really extensively photographed, and as images of these whiskered, big-bearded soldiers were transmitted back to Britain, full beards, which had been out of fashion since Tudor times, suddenly became associated with these martial and manly virtues. In fact, by 1860, the army had embraced this and was actively requiring moustaches. So if beards were mostly well looked upon, why did the army come to reject them? By the 1890s, fashions started to shift. Better razors were available. Doctors took to warning against facial hair because a damp beard was thought to spread germs, and beards became the preserve of the older men as the young rejected the fashions of their father. The army, though, was slower to adapt. That rule requiring moustaches lasted all the way until 1916, and some regiments even maintained a stockpile of fake moustaches for soldiers unable to grow their own. But it went in 1916 during the First World War. It went for a few reasons, um, partially because it was starting to be ignored during the course of the war, but the recruitment of ever younger men who were unable to grow their own moustaches and fears about the close fit of gas masks led to the regulations being changed. So since 1916, all forms of facial hair have technically been banned in the British Army. So can we expect beards back in the army anytime soon? 
The army at the moment is struggling to find recruits and the defence secretary, Grant Chaps, thinks it is, and he said, ridiculous that the army is turning away potential recruits because of facial hair. The army board is expected to make a decision soon, so it looks like um, beards might be allowed back in the army again soon. And, you know, I'm sure the Victorians would think that's a very good thing. Duncan, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. I hope you caught Saturday's episode of The Weekend Intelligence, which was about a serial killer. No, no, not that true crime stuff. It's about maize, or as I know it, corn, a grain that kills. Our correspondent looks into corn's deadly history and a fascinating cultural campaign for its future. If you're a subscriber to Economist Podcasts Plus, have a listen. If not, my word, what are you waiting for? Search Economist Podcasts to sign up and get access to that corny content and all of our award-winning podcasts. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.